Good evening, everyone. It's lovely to see you all here this evening. Welcome to the National Library of Australia. My name's Cathy Pilgrim, and I'm the Assistant Director General of the Executive and Public Programs Division here at the Library. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call home. I'm delighted that you've joined us this, this evening to hear Stephen Carroll in conversation with Louise Ma. It is wonderful to welcome Stephen back to the library. Some of you may have heard him speak at our Writing the Australian Landscape Conference in August 2013. Stephen is one of Australia's most awarded literary writers. Before becoming a full-time writer, Stephen taught English in Melbourne high schools, spent the 1970s playing in bands, writing plays and then reviewing them as a drama critic for the Sunday Age. He can now boast nine successful novels, including the most recent, Forever Young. Last year, perhaps somewhat notoriously, he was joint winner of the Prime Minister's Award for Fiction. Stephen is joined tonight by ABC 666's Louise Ma. Many of you know Louise as a presenter of The Drive program for over eight years. Louise is now the ABC 666 online and field reporter, sharing her love of telling true stories about real people. Tonight, of course, we are celebrating the publication of Stephen's novel, Forever Young, the fifth book in Stephen's Glenroy series. Forever Young coincides with Gough Whitlam's election defeat at the end of 1977. And so to begin the conversation, please join me in welcoming Stephen Carroll and Louise Maher. Well, thank you so much for coming out on a cold winter's night to the very warm hub of the National Library. It's lovely to see you all here and lovely to see Stephen back in Canberra as well. I had the privilege of interviewing Stephen a couple of times when I was presenting the Drive program upon the release of, of different books and it was always lovely to, to talk with him. But this opportunity is even better because we can have a good long chat rather than have to worry about the news intruding. Um, as Cathy mentioned... <laughs> Uh, the Miles Franklin Award, the 2015 winner was announced just two nights ago. So I might ask you about that, The Eye of the Sheep, the winner this year by Sophie Laguna. Have you read it? No, no. no I, I don't get much chance to actually do a lot of reading of contemporary fiction. It's not because I don't want to, but I just don't get the chance because I'm writing um, and also I, I review for the for the age and and the SMH, and that requires four reviews every fortnight of non-fiction books. It's pretty relentless. So I rarely get the chance to actually sit down and and read a book. So I haven't read it. If no. you did, I, it, no, you do. You don't have to mm. apologise. If you did mm. have the chance to sit down and read a novel, what would you go for? Do you think? Well, um, I, I usually go for the books that I think are going to be useful. Um, uh, it's uh, um, it, in what I'm planning um, and sometimes see this time I normally you get about four or five months off in between a book you know uh, th there's there's a lag of about nine months before a book is published um, uh, and and by the time it's actually published um, you I really like to be actually on to something else 
um, it's just an old habit I've, I've had, just in case you get a complete shellacking by the press, you know. <laughs> you can go back on Monday and you can and you can go back to the book that you had faith in before you got the shellacking, so nothing's changed. That was, I'm a superstitious person. So, But this time I actually didn't um, get the chance because there's been a fair bit going on. Um, and I haven't had a chance to actually indulge myself in reading um, um, uh, 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 this time at all it's but mostly I, I look for the stuff that I think will be helpful but mm. often I'll just uh, in between books as as the saying goes um I um I, I just I'll, I'll go anywhere um in terms of literature and yeah. just sort of just indulge myself but it's a long time since I've read just like a reader and um it, it and I will get back to that habit um eventually but I'm We'd rather you keep writing. Yeah, than yeah. actually, I <laughs> think. <laughs> but I, I tend to be actually constantly um, either on duty writing a book or looking for ideas. Oh, yeah. Or talking about your books. Yeah. You won the, the Miles Franklin for the time we have taken in 2008. And, mm. of course, you were the joint winner, as Cathy said, of the Prime Minister's Literary Award last year for A World of Other People. So mm. w- what do those sort of prizes mean for you? Obviously, there's the financial reward. As uh, Sophie Laguna, this year's winner, said it, it buys you time for writing and she said mm. it gives her young family a sense of security for a while at least. But what else does it give you? Oh, that that's should never be underestimated, uh, that it gives you money to live off. Um, because it's, it's, it's T.S. Eliot called writing a mugs game um, in, I think it was about 70, and he had all the acclaim that he had. Um, and he said, uh, you've called... He's the interviewer said to him, uh, you've called writing a mugs game. Uh, you called it uh, about 10 years beforehand. Would you still say that? He said, oh, yes, absolutely. It's a mugs game. Um, and to an extent it is. There's no money in it. And I was writing for about 20 years mm. before um, I started to make any money at all. Um, and I had to write for about 12 years just to get my first novel published. Um, there's nothing in it for a long, long time. So when you actually get these windfalls, um, when your ship comes in, um, be it the Miles Franklin or the Prime Minister's Award, um, it does give you that sense of stability. You know, oh, the electricity bill comes in. Well, what the hell? You know, <laughs> it's, it, it's, uh, it, it gives you a sense of security that you, you don't normally have at all. So that's um, the main thing, that sense yeah. of security. Oh, also confidence. Um, because um, it's you know obviously been noted, and writing's a confidence game. Um, you've you've got to actually really believe in what you're doing, and it's it's very hard to get confidence, and it's extremely easy to lose it. Mm. Um, so it gives you confidence as well. What did you make of the controversy when the prime minister intervened? Uh, to say that you had to share the prize with Richard Flanagan because one of the judges, Les Murray, made it quite clear that mm. he wanted you to be the sole winner, that the panel wanted you to be the sole winner. Uh, well, look, I can't really say too much about that because you're on a hiding to nothing, whatever you say. Um, but basically, um, the reality is that I, I, um, I walked out with a darn sight more than I walked in with. It was a bit of a surreal night. Um, Tell us more about it. What, what was happening? Oh, no, I just meant that just quite surreal to suddenly find yourself standing up there with no prepared mm. speech whatsoever. You didn't um, prepare a speech? No, no. I'm, again, I'm a superstitious person. Um, I never prepare speeches yeah. um, for these things because um, I figure it, uh, 
the moment you prepare a speech for a prize-giving ceremony, you'll, you won't be called upon to give it. So I'd, I'd rather give a rambling, poor speech um, rather than give no speech at all. So I had nothing prepared whatsoever and, um, and suddenly I was talking to Tony, uh, who looks a bit surreal, I've got to say. Um, he's the tightest-looking person I ever saw, I've ever up close. You know. Did he tell you whether he, what he thought about oh, your no, book? I mean, no, no, no. He, he wouldn't. Uh, he no, didn't mention no, that he no, read no, it. No, 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 no. I didn't know anything about all the kerfuffle until the next no, day. No, was that? Yeah, it was. A it day was or just. So after, I, yeah. I was just felt pretty happy walking out with forty grand. You know, I was very pleased. <laughs> <coughs> Forever young. Your your new novel is the the latest instalment in what's become known as your Glenroy series. Mm. Glenroy is the Melbourne suburb where you grew up, and it's a place very similar, if not the same place. Uh, as to where you first set the story of Vic, the engine driver, his wife Rita and their son Michael. And in this book, in the new book, Michael is now 33. He's about to embark on a new chapter of his life, which he starts by uh, dumping his girlfriend and selling his guitar. Mm. Uh, Now, your father was also an engine driver. You once sold a guitar when you decided you'd rather be a writer than a musician. Mm. I'm not going to ask you if you dumped your girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) But um, where is is the line, Stephen, between the fictional family you've created, Mm. including Michael, who's actually a bit older than you, really, and Mm. and your own life? You can't... You can't walk away from the biographical aspects to all of this. Um, I think the most honest book is The Art of the Engine Driver. Um, That's the one that actually was pretty close to a lot of things. Um, But at the same time, as the books went on, I suppose when I was writing The Art of the Engine Driver, I I could see the image of my dad, who was an engine driver, and and my mum, whose dresses were too good for the street. Um, um, And I'd see their faces when I was... Writing, writing the art of the engine driver, but as it went on, their faces started to go blank, um, and I was less conscious of the models of of my parents and more aware of the fact that they actually st- they started to become characters in their own right, and I didn't think of them in terms of my folks. Um, I uh, they just became characters from about the gift of speed onwards. Um, but at the same time, you still draw on you know that that the, 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 the raw material, and often it's quite raw. Um, and that's why engine driver is the most honest. That's the one I was least aware of artifice in writing the en- uh, engine driver. And you said before that that came to you in a dream, that image of your yeah. parents and the young mm. Michael on mm. the dusty street, yeah. on the dusty yeah. road, really. It was. It was, a, it was a gift of a dream. Um, I was going to write a novel about T.S. Eliot, um, and it was the late 90s, and I woke up at about, um, I think it was about 1997, 98, or something like that, and I woke up about 6 o'clock in the morning and from an extraordinarily vivid dream, and I could see my dad, um, um, who's now dead, um, and, uh, and my mum, and myself around about probably the age of 12. Um, and I could, and we all had our best clothes on. Um, and we were, were stand- going somewhere. We were going somewhere. Uh, and, um, and, uh, and we were standing in front of a vacant paddock. Um, and I remember that vacant paddock in my old street in Glenroy. Um, it was a vacant paddock for a long time. Um, and, and I knew it was a, probably a Saturday night and it was summer and there were words going across the film. Of, of the dream and I remember 
peach glow of sunset. Uh, I, I, I wrote the words down as soon as I, wo- uh, as soon as I woke up. You'll have to. Go. They're in the first paragraph of the Art of the Engine Driver. I think about a half a dozen words survived from the dream. And I wrote them down. And then I worked from that dream because it was so urgent. It was virtual in its reality. They were a, a tableau vivant. Um, and it was, um, it was quite interesting because it's what dreams can actually earth, uh, unearth. Because um, I'd forgotten that I'd had a favourite shirt with a button-down collar. But and was dream, that what you were wearing in the dream? Yeah, the dream retrieved. And I woke up, uh, well, while I was also saying to myself, wow, what a dream, where were we going? God, I forgot about the shirt. Um, and the dream brought it back. It was vivid, it was extraordinarily vivid. And did you start writing the novel the, the no, next day? No, I waited and waited. And, and I, it's one of those, I knew something had to happen there because it did feel urgent. And that was when I, uh, I started asking myself, well, where were we going and... And that was when I remembered a party at the bottom of the street um, given by an Englishman for his daughter, an engagement party. And that was when I hit upon the idea of taking the three of us to that party. And I'd no sooner thought that than I thought, well, why not take the whole street? And so it became a procession and all the people I grew up with just stepped out their front gates and into the book. But it was rejected by every publisher in the country, just about... Um, How did it get published? Uh, uh, luck. I reckon there's a lot of luck involved in this game. Um, it, it took 18 months to get a publisher for the, eight, uh, for the Art of the Engine Driver. And if, I reckon if there were an award for the most rejected manuscript in contemporary Australian literature, Engine Driver would be right up there as a contender. Um, it, um, uh, eventually, HarperCollins came to my rescue, and I'm still with them, um, uh, there's a woman comes in on. I, th- I think she still does it. Um, a woman of a certain age, I gather. I've never met her, um, and she goes through the unsolicited manuscripts. Uh, and she took a shine to mine. She comes in every uh, one Monday a month, and she took a shine to it. And, and then she passed it on to somebody else, and somebody else, and somebody else, and it went up through the um, um, through the chain. Uh, and they um, they eventually um, um, took it on, um, but it, it's luck, you know. That was pretty much the end of the end of the line. Um, it had been rejected by just about every publisher in the country. Even when it was being rejected, after you'd written it, did you have in mind that it would be? Part of a series? No, no. I never lost faith in the book, actually, because this... I reckon the first three novels, I was still learning how to write a novel. Um, I, I got... I was writing... Like I said, I was writing for 12 and a half years before I got published, um, and then I was still learning as I published Remember Me, Jimmy James and Momoko and The Love Song of Lucy McBride. Remember Me, Jimmy James, I... I you know, I still feel a bit kind of, you know, awkward about that book because I think the first third is... I don't think it's particularly good. Um, I look at it and think, oh. um, The second third, I think, is a bit better and, and the final bit gets, gets, gets better. Mm. Um, Momoko, I, um, I was so keen um, to actually get a second book out there because I thought, Christ, you know, this might, I might be running out of chances here. Um, and I underwrote that book. Um, and then determined not to underwrite the next book, I overwrote the third book. Can you explain um, what, what you mean by underwriting and oh, I was still getting flashes of Momoko even when it was published, and I thought, oh, there was that scene. Oh, I didn't wait long enough. Um, For it to gel. Yeah, to, to everything to really settle. Um, 
um, I was uh, 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 I was a bit rushed on that one, and then I I put too much into the love song of Lucy McBride, um, and that uh, that was overwritten. But by the time I got to the art of the engine driver and did that, um, I felt like I knew how to write a novel. Then. That you'd nailed it. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually got it. Ah, oh, oh, that's it. Right, and I um, so I never actually lost, even when it was getting rejected all over the shop. I um. I didn't actually lose faith in the book because I figured it was the up until then it was the best thing I'd ever done. So, at what point did you decide that you wanted to continue exploring the lives and the world of Vic, Rita, and Michael? Well, certainly it wasn't when I was doing the Art of the Engine Driver. I thought that was just a one-off book. Um, but it was, I was—I think as I got—I um, think when it was published and I started thinking about it, and I—and the idea of. See, the idea, a lot of things, to, that went through about three drafts. And actually half of it was written in France um, um, in, in a little place called pont in, in in Brittany. That was, that, was, that was really quite helpful. A lot of distance in, in, mm. involved, uh, it, it helped a lot. Um, the old, you know, in the geography old, as well as time. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. And when it was published, um, I started to think about the suburb as, as a, as a as a continuing idea, um, and no, the suburb's not a character; it hasn't got head or legs, but it's um, it, it's 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 a central um, um, symbol um, um, or image. Um, in, of change in, in, in society. Yeah, change well, in no, that's I, that's what I think that's when I started hitting on the idea of um, a series of books about the evolution of a suburb, um, a post-war Australian suburb, um, and the and the people living in that suburb and um, I, I, I think that was after it was published I can't recall exactly um, but then I started thinking in terms of, of a trilogy and when I finished the trilogy I thought well that's it good and then, and I then read, you couldn't stop <laughs> now then I read Proust and I thought wow no I haven't finished yet um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I went on and, and thought no there's more to be done here and so there's the fifth, this, is the fifth, this is the final one chronologically this is where it all ends, the story. But I will go back now um, when I finish doing things like this and I'll do the very first part, which would be set in Melbourne in 1917 during the conscription referenda. Um, and it'll be um, about um, Vic's circumstances of Vic's birth and his mother and her determination to um, keep her child and you, be a single mother. Your books do loop around. And, and for example, mm. um, in Forever Young, we also catch up with Sam, who mm. was a young painter in The Lost Life. So, you mm. know, he suddenly appears. Mm. It's, it's great. Yeah. Um, spirit of Progress, yeah. Mm. Yeah, sorry, in yeah, Spirit of yeah, Progress, not yeah. The Lost Life. Yeah, Spirit yeah. of Progress. And that, that book was based around the story, well, part, yeah, about the story of your, your real great aunt mm. who lived in a tent on the edge of the city and was painted yeah. by Sidney Nolan quite yeah. famously. Mm. Um, and there's another character in Spirit of Progress who is Sidney Nolan. Uh, but why mm. is Sam back? Um, Oh, heavens, I don't know. Um, it's not so much Sam to me as the character of art. Mm. Um, um, he, he's, he's briefly... He, make, he has a cameo appearance, in yeah. um, a walk-on, walk-off appearance in The Spirit of Progress. He's one of the angry penguins. Um, I, I was always thinking of someone like Albert Tucker, you know. Um, and, uh, and I knew I actually wanted to have an expatriate in this book because um, mm. I knew I was going to be working around ideas of youth and age and, and old travel. world and new world yeah. 
and um, and home and not home and and I did a lot of the writing for this. In fact, I wrote that whole section um, uh, about uh, 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 about Mandy, um, who's uh, Michael's girlfriend, whom he quite brutally dumped. Um, and um, I was I went to a, a little place. I actually did go to a um, an old monastery in um, in Tuscany, and um, and uh, I, I wrote a lot of the that section um, from there. And when I um, got there, the woman who ran the um, writer's retreat um, said, um, oh, that village over there, uh, that is where Amarigo Vespucci set off to discover the new world. And I, I didn't even pay any attention. I thought I, I was just being flying for about 40 hours. So I just went in. And when I got back, um, I thought, hang on was that guy who set off to where? And, and it started to actually play in that I knew I wanted to have my character of art living in mm. Italy uh, after the war, to pick up the, the tale uh, that is alluded to in the spirit of progress. Um, and so that actually became the setting for it. And that whole business of old world and new world actually yeah. started to fit in with the business of forever young and forever growing old and mm. all the paradoxes that were... were interesting to deal with in forever young michael is 33 and about to as Mm. i said start this new chapter but it's uh at a point in in australian history when a a chapter is um about to close the mountain Mm. is leaving Mm. the landscape Mm. so this is gough whitlam leading up to the uh election in december 77 which which gough um, lost and Mm. then later uh, resigned and i mean a lot of people when they think about the whitlam years they do think about 72 and all the hope and all the promise. There's not mm. much attention really mm. uh, on the dying days of that. Yeah. So what grabbed you about that? Well, it usually when people write about Whitlam, it's, it is those early days of mm. 1972 or, or, the, or the very dramatic days of 1975. Mm. I, I, I felt they'd all been done to death actually. Um, um, Oh, they can never be done to death, of course. No, but I felt that, that there'd, there'd been a, a lot of attention given to those uh, to those um, particular dates, and I I think my temperament took me to the dying days of the of, of the Whitlam era because I think I've got a, a kind of um, Edwardian sensibility. Um, I'm sort of nostalgic for the moment, even as I'm living through it. Um, and uh, I, I think I've got one of those late Victorian sensibilities um, for whom, you know, the shadows are always long on the green playing fields of our youth. And I, I've got that kind of aspect. Um, and so there was something suitably elegiac about the last days of Whitlam. Mournful, uh, even? Um, Sombre, um, Elegiac. I don't know about mournful. Um, I actually quite like sadness. Um, I don't think it needs to be mournful. I think sadness has had a bad press. Um, I c- it can be quite exciting. <coughs> yeah, well, there's so much about happiness. It's these a thinking days, person's there, yeah. happiness. Now, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, let me let me go back a bit. You sort of mm. you, you studied for a while to become an art teacher, but you, you decided mm. that the painting wasn't your thing. Uh, you became an English teacher, you played in a band. Mm. So you've practised all these different types of creative endeavour, art and music, Mm. really, before settling on on writing. And in your writing, you often muse on the whole creative process 
and you seem to love exploring the worlds mm. of creative people, the Angry Penguins, T.S. Eliot. Mm. So what is it that particular, particularly fascinates you about that creative process and, and about T.S. Eliot? You've had a mm. lot of... You've had a very strong relationship with T.S. Eliot. You mm. wrote a play about him when you were younger that mm. didn't get produced, but um, also you brought him to life in The Lost Life and gave us a story about what, have, what might have inspired his first quartet, Burnt Norton. Mm. And then, of course, there's the whole appearance of T.S. Eliot again in A World of Other People. So mm. what is it about the creative process and about T.S. Eliot in particular that yeah, entrances um, you? Well, I'll divide it up in about three parts, that, <laughs> that, that, um, that question, and I'll, um, I'll, I'll ask you to actually um, um, keep me in line because I will digress. Um, but aesthetics... Uh, is is the common preoccupation throughout all of the books, and it doesn't matter if it's the Glen Roy books or it's the um, or it's the T. S. Eliot books. Um, the, the, to a large extent, the real subject is aesthetics. Now, in The Gift of Speed, Michael um, uh, um, um, almost compulsively um, bowls in a cricket net, um, and he's not you know he doesn't have this dream of playing for Australia or anything like that. What he wants to do is bowl the Perfect, perfect ball. Yeah. Um, that's the thing he's pursuing. Um, in the art of the engine driver, it, uh, it's it's about. It's not. I knew all along it wasn't just about engines. It's about aesthetics as well. Um, and um, uh, uh, that whole notion of the aesthetically satisfying entering an ordinary life, um, not in an art gallery, but um, in the very things that you do um, interests me. The whole notion that somehow aesthetics can enter what you do in your life and in being aesthetically pleasing, it also gives us a sense of meaning as well. Um, and that is, is, is a really strong, I suppose, existential theme that runs through the books that it's through what you do and discovering the aesthetically pleasing in what you do that your life can be invested with a sense of satisfaction and a touch of the sublime can almost enter it. Um, your books it, exist so much in the mind of the characters too. There's not a lot of mm, conversation. We, uh, we're with them as they think and yeah. as they understand, as they process. Yeah, th that's right. And or just feel. Yeah, I, I used to... Um, I started writing plays because I thought dialogue was my strength um, and I, I spent a long time writing plays but, but eventually when I was started writing novels um, I lost faith in, in, in dialogue or I lost interest in dialogue. It always felt um, a bit fake to me to have people speaking. I was far more interested in actually going into their heads but it's not as though they're internal monologues. No. It, you go inside their head but it's actually always sort of orchestrated by the uh, authorial voice and I prefer the third person um, um, omnipresent authorial voice, you know, the godlike figure who can go anywhere. And so that's the voice that goes into the, um, the minds of the characters. And so you're, you're getting their dialogue, if you like, um, uh, or their monologues, um, um, uh, a bit filtered through the author's voice. I find that far more interesting. You can actually be far more expansive um, and you can actually um, uh, explore what a character is actually thinking uh, and doesn't say um, in that way. And it, it's, it's, it, it's a way of writing dialogue without having the characters speak, um, but also um, 
articulating the things that they don't say because the great thing about dialogue is that, you know, it's the tip of the iceberg. Um, it's, uh, it's, um, it, it's by no means what somebody's really thinking because when we speak, you know, you're, as I'm talking now, you know, there's, there's so many different things going through your mind, you know, when I'm going to have for dinner. And, and, and different you, filters. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, you know, and you don't only get a touch of that when someone speaks. You don't. And what is it about the, the repetition in your writing ah. too? Well, see, the, the Coming const- back to the same phrases. Yeah, or yeah the, the, the constant phrase. challenge the whole way through with all of these Glenroy books was um, not to fall back into social realism. Um, now, I like social realism. Um, some of my favourite writers are social realists. Now, I, I love the Alan Silito. And in fact, when I was trying to come up with the title for The Art of the Engine Driver, um, um, I was harking back to the loneliness of the long-distance runner and, and I thought, gee, I'd love to have a title that had that kind of unlikely lyricism, you know, sort of, um, but, but that had that element of paradox to it, of um, the, um, of, 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 of what, what did Johnson call it, you know, the, the metaphysical poets, um, 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 uh, opposing ideas heterogeneously linked together or yoked together, you know. And the, you know, the loneliness, the long distance runner had that aspect to it. And so mm. I went for something similar to that and that's how I eventually wound up with the art of the engine driver because you know you don't normally think of engine driving as having an art to it but um, getting back to aesthetics you know, I, my dad was an engine driver and um, I can recall when he'd come back from work and his mates his driver mates would be around um, and they would talk about their job they would talk about it in art, in artistic terms they would talk about so-and-so's style of driving. There was a, a strong awareness that everybody had um, a different way of doing it, that it was their touch, almost like a, um, a, a painter's signature on a painting. You know. and, and the one they all deferred to was um, the, the Queen's driver, um, the Chief Commissioner's driver, who drove the Queen uh, when he was out here. Because my, my dad was what they call a big-wheel driver. I mean, the big wheel refers to the passenger uh, to the passenger trains because the you know the, the engines that drew the um, the passenger trains had six foot wheels, mm-hmm. whereas the goods have only got two and a half foot wheels. Um, so they're called big wheel drivers. There weren't too many of them, so he actually did pretty well. Um, and uh, but the, the the number one driver was a guy who his big trick um, was was that he would put um, a mug down uh, of tea beside him with a spoon in it. And if the spoon started to rattle during the trip, then he'd realise that adjustments had to be made to actually restore the smoothness of the ride, either slow down or speed Such up. Such a fabulous image. Uh, uh, it, yeah, uh, that's, it's, and I remember my dad telling me that, you know. And, and like I, said, I, I, I can recall him preparing to go to work and, and, and he'd, he'd shave um, once and then twice and he'd say, before you drive, you need a clean, shaven face. He'd be explaining it to me and he'd say that when he was driving um, he would um, he'd say this is why because when he was driving he'd put his cheek out the window and it wouldn't matter if it was steam or diesel and he could tell um, the speed of the engine from the rush of the wind on his smooth cheek and he'd look down at the sleepers and he'd combine the both and he would actually have a really good sense of how fast the engine was going um, in relation to how fast it ought to be going mm. at that stage to provide, again, the smooth ride, which is what they all aspired to. Um, so uh, these things all came into play, but they all have that connecting thread 
that they're about aesthetics, but it's not in the art gallery in everyday life the way aesthetics can um, ennoble an ordinary life. Let's go back to a connecting thread and looking down from a machine and an image. Um, let's talk about that image in a world of other people where we have an aspiring young writer finding herself on a roof in London, on the roof of Faber and Faber, the publishing house, with a mm. couple of middle-aged blokes in the middle of the Blitz. Mm. And one of those blokes is T.S. Eliot, who actually mm. was, who knew, um, mm. a fire spotter during the Second World mm. War. So they're up on the roof watching out at night, all night, to see whether any of the German planes, bombs, have, have started fires. Uh, and as they're standing there, this is such an incredible image, as they're standing there, a plane comes through the clouds above them, only a couple mm. of hundred feet above their heads. One engine is on fire and there's a mm. white dove painted mm. on the side of the plane. Mm. And Iris, the young writer, is watching T.S. Eliot watching that plane mm. and getting the spark of an idea mm. that would later be transformed into the fourth of his quartet's mm. little yeah. getting. Mm. How did you come up with that? <laughs> I, I, I thought about that book for 12 months before I wrote it. I was writing... Um, uh, Spirit of Progress, um, and I, I finished writing in the mo uh, uh, in, in about midday or so. I mean, I, I, I write from around about eight thirty to about midday, and I handwrite and I aim for a thousand words, and and, uh, and I get them. Um, it's 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 fun. Uh, it's not not a problem. Touch wood. Um, but in the afternoons, I'd be I'd be reading for, uh, for that book. And, and I went through about four or five different scenarios um, and none of them actually satisfied me. And I remembered that when I did The Lost Life, I actually got the idea for the opening of the book from the poem itself, you know, The Children in the Garden. Um, and for uh, those who haven't read The Lost Life, this is... Um, Bert Norton. Yeah, th this is a book that uh, features T.S. Eliot as a character mm. and what might have happened in his life, which may mm. have explained why he wrote the first quartet, Bert Norton, yeah, in yeah. a nutshell. Yeah, in a nutshell, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's much more to it. There's yeah. two love stories. Yeah. Um, or at least two. The, the, <laughs> at least two. Um, and so I, I went back to Little Gidding, the poem, and I saw the line about the, the dove descending. And I remember reading that at university when I was studying it and, and the tutor pointing out that, of course, well, that's a German bomber. Um, and I thought, oh, really? A, a and, and then I thought, well, I, you wouldn't pick it. You wouldn't think that he's referring to um, um, a, a bomber in flames um, um, coming in, well, to crash land, actually. Um, and as the years went by, I started to think about that line and thought, well, what he's done there is he's actually taken um, um, a, a really tragic circumstance and quite a dramatic one as well, but he's turned it into poetic totem. Can I, I read mean, just the two, the two lines? That, that yeah. The dove descending breaks the air with flames of incandescent terror of which the tongues declare the one discharge from sin and error. Yeah, yeah. So it, it becomes the central motif, you know, yeah, the Pentecostal yeah. fires. Um, but um, what, what intrigued me there is that um, he'd actually taken um, something like that and turned it into poetic totem, which is kind of, you know, comfortable for him to do. And this is what poets do. You can't blame them for that. You know, there's got to be a distance um, established in the way you actually, you know, deal with experience in life. 
But I also started to think, well, inside that poetic totem, inside that bomber, there would have been dead people. There would have been splattering blood, teeth, bone everywhere. Uh, It would have been messy and ugly um, and you don't get any of that in the poem. You get neat poetic totem instead. And so what I wanted to do was, was... work that idea and that's where Iris comes into it. Iris is actually the one who actually, if you like, dismantles um, um, uh, the um, the neatness of the poetic image um, with her version of events. She, she actually gets to know the pilot who was actually in that plane and is the sole survivor of it. Now, what I wanted to do in that book, I suppose, was provide a kind of um, um, a, a novelistic-length image um, of what it is to walk through the no man's land between experience and messy experience being turned into the order of art and the book actually occupying that middle ground before it is turned into the neatness mm. of art. There's a little so passage, that's why actually. I came to that image. <clears throat> Sorry, there's a passage in it which I think sums it up. Um, when... Well, we'll talk about coincidences in a minute too because okay, I love the yeah. coincidences in your book. Yeah. But do you remember this where um, uh, just from here, will the applause, you know, will the applause, will it sting you? Um, that was my plane, that was my kite just down. Ah, yeah, this is where, uh, this scene in, in, in the book, and I actually I think I wrote this, it's a long, it's a long chapter, I think I wrote it in one day or... Or possibly he's in he's in Elliot's church, um, St Stephen's in London, and he um, he's he hasn't gone there to hear Elliot read, but Elliot is actually reading from Little Gidding, um, and when Elliot passes him by at the end of, of of the reading, and he's in quite a sorry state because he's actually just had um, a repressed memory um, 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 unearthed um, uh, retrieved for him, and it's quite devastating. His legs um, are like jelly. Yeah, uh, well, uh, it, 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 the effect. Uh, what it's what it is, what I suppose what I also wanted to do here was to show not so much the ba- the, the background story of the poem as, as as the lost life was. I wanted to actually show the impact of a poem on someone's life, and in this case, the poem has a terrible secret. The poem contains um, something awful that the the character of Jim does not want to recognise, but nonetheless it forces him to recognise it anyway. And so he, d- he learns that terrible repressed mm-hmm. secret through the reading of the poem. But as Eliot's going past, he says, yeah, that was my kite, you know. Uh, that, was, um, that was my plane, that was my crew. And these crew, they were like family. They'd been together for such a long time. And his crew, he lost his family, he lost his crew, he lost his kite that night and he's looking at Elliot and saying, and all you could do was take notes. When you should have cared, all you could do was stand back and take notes. Well, yes, um, there is a kind of inhumanity involved in that, uh, in that sort of impersonality. But at the same time, that is the kind of inhumanity that is required if you're going to create artistic order out of the messiness of life. It requires mm. that as well. So I'm not condemning Elliot. I'm just saying this is how that's it happens. That's what he did. Yeah, yeah. That's what he did. <clears throat> coincidences. Because yep. writers argue about coincidences in novels. So some say 
uh, it's it's too easy. It's it's cheating in a way. You're trying to wrap things up because you haven't got to mm-hmm. a certain place where you should have been. And others say, which I agree with, coincidence has coincidences happen all the time in life. Why mm. can't they be used in novels? But you use mm. coincidences to you know a great degree in in this book, A World of Other People, but also mm. in Forever Young, uh, mm. in the sense of you know who is Michael's mother seeing when she's staring out yeah. at the horizon mm. that day who does tricks meet at the party in melbourne they're mm. fabulous coincidences mm. Mm. it's um, uh, i'm when i was drama uh, reviewer a theater reviewer for for the sunday age for for about 10 years um i got to you know, speak to a lot of my favorite um, writers and i got to interview tom stoppard and 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 that was that was it was a phone uh, but it was really good because uh, i've admired him for mm. ever and um and we talked about coincidence and uh, i and he said, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm with him, that coincidence happens far more um, in life than it does in fiction, um, that I think, um, I think uh, creative writers are a little bit timid when it comes to coincidence. Mm. Um, so I'm never, I'm, no, I'm certainly no shrinking violet when it comes to actually throwing in a bit of coincidence because um, uh, it, it happens all the time in life, far more than it does in creative art. You know, um, we so often things happen to us in life, and and you think, oh God, if you read that in a book, you wouldn't believe it. And it's exactly what mm. Rita Rita says when yeah. she's in the mm. square in mm. Italy. That's a that's a gorgeous little passage. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. So uh, there's there's it's a kind of almost a reflexive um, element in there um, about the whole sort of no, uh, nature of the scene itself. This is a this is a far fetched coincidence, but. They happen. Mm. I mean, there's quite. A, when I was talking before about you know um, about, about um, finding a way of doing these Glenroy books that didn't fall back into um, 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 social realism, um, as much as I like it, it's it, you know it definitely had its day by the time I was writing these books, and there were all sorts of things had to come into play to actually mm. do that, and that kind of reflexive element um, that started to come into play with the gift of speed. And you were, mm. you were talking about repetitions and, and mm. what not before. I mean, that, that's actually quite deliberate. The bus um, winding down the hill, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but also the repetitions in the yeah. lines yeah. and the recurring yeah. words. Yeah. You know, like when I started writing, there were no creative writing classes. I mean, my teachers were Hemingway and, um, and Fitzgerald and Elliot, and they're very, very good teachers. They will tell you a lot in their essays, not just their, um, their their creative writing, but their lectures and their essays and their interviews. And Hemingway had this wonderful trick um, of um, of having a repeated line going through his dialogue. And I, I, look, I, I think the best of Hemingway is in his short stories. I think his novels are, are not particularly good, but his short stories. I think anybody who really wants to learn how to write ignores Hemingway um, at their peril. Um, his short stories are just brilliant. Um, and he has his dialogue, and it's, I, I don't think of Hemingway as a, as a realist yeah. either. He's far too mannered to be a realist. I think of him uh, as, as, as a, um, as, uh, I think Fitzgerald as being far more realistic a writer. But Hemingway, very, very mannered, modernist um, um, uh, writer in his short stories. But he has this trick, often with his dialogue, where there'll be a connecting word running through the whole lot that might be joke, you know, and a character will say, is that a joke? No, I don't joke. You joke? No, I don't joke. Hey, he's joking me. He's jo- he says he doesn't joke. And this, this could be a whole page of dialogue with the linking word joke, and it might be used about half a dozen times, and it's quite deliberate. He's not just mm. repeating himself. 
And I, I can recall at one stage thinking, well, I'm going to take that little trick, but not use it in dialogue, use it in prose. And so, and I started to fall in love with really long sentences when I started doing The Gift of Speed and flowing through into the others. And I found it was actually helped me a lot to have a kind of recurring word running through um, a, a sentence that might go for a half a page or even more. And, um, and, and that's, that's quite deliberately there. And it has it, quite a mesmerising effect on well, the reader, I'm, I think. I'm glad, because yeah. it, it was that kind of effect that I wanted to get. You know, I mean, T.S. Eliot has this um, theory that he calls... And it's in one of his essays on Matthew Arnold. He, he talks about something called the auditory imagination, by which he means that meaning is embedded in cadence, by which he means that the meaning of something um, will be found in the fall and the rhythm of the words, that you might be halfway through a sentence um, and only have half the words of the sentence, but you've got the rhythm, and the rhythm mm. will lead you on to what the words are. Um, it's like you know the rhyming couplets. I think it's a great way of coming up with the right word. And that, that was one of Eliot's main strengths, and he ignored that at his peril. Um, and as a kid, apparently, he would go, um, he'd have a line going, da-da, 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 and then he'd go, da-da, da-da, da-da. Now, he didn't know what the, the words were, but he knew the sentence wasn't finished. Um, and I started incorporating that and that Hemingway trick also of, of, of having the key word running through the whole thing and, ha- and having a sort of a sense, a rhythmic sense of, of the sentences, you know, so that you know, if you take the key word as being a grunt, you can have it. I, I can feel a sentence often, you know, that there's a, a you know, you know, and following it through. This is the old rock and roller, I guess. Yeah. But you, you, I'm conscious of following the beat through the sentences mm. with its linking um, rhythms. Um, uh, and, and often that gives you the words. Um, and th- th- these, are, these were things that I just deliberately started to incorporate into the writing to actually get away from, um, from as I say, social realism well, and see. try to find another way of taking the suburbs, which are so familiar and making them as unfamiliar as possible so that in the end, the characters and the place, they look like some sort of lost exotic tribe. Hopefully, that's the effect you try to get. And at some stage, the reader realises that that lost exotic tribe is, um, in fact, us. And it's so easy to overlook the exotic in ourselves. We so often look for it elsewhere. Mm. And that was the constant challenge of these books, was to actually find a way of saying, of renovating the subject of the suburbs. That's just one example. Like something out of a dream. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I do want to give people the opportunity to ask some questions before we wrap Mm. up, but can you read for us? Especially after what you've just been saying about how you you write. Let's, Let's hear a passage from Forever Young. So they say that you should never actually... Um, uh, I taught creative writing classes for quite a long time and uh, they say you should never read from your own work. Why not? After you've been talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the very end um, of the book. It's, it's not a thriller, um, so it really doesn't matter. Um, Michael is in... Um, and by the way, I, I never really thought of Michael as being me. Um, he does things that I did, but he does things that I never did as well. Um, um, uh, and I don't know where that comes from. Um, <clears throat> but um, this is, he's in his room in France, which 
it, it's pretty much the room that I did have. I lived in the, the top floor of the town hall in Ponto then and I overlooked the whole town. Um, in fact, I was the only one there when I was living there and at the end of the day I would have to go downstairs and lock the front door of the town hall before I went upstairs to go back to bed. You know, it was, um, and then they'd all let themselves in, the administrators, the next day. But I had a panoramic view of the whole town. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a toy town. Um, and this is Michael um, in his room um, and there's a sound downstairs that is actually... Um, kind of pleasant and comical uh, almost. Um, it's, it's a slapping sound of, um, of a rug being beaten by a woman down in the street. Um, but it becomes quite disturbing as he listens mm. to it. And it and repeats the, it repeats the, the mm. slapping of a gate earlier in the book too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, that's a, 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 a yeah. motif running through it. And of course this is, this is him sitting down to write the opening of the art of the engine driver itself. <clears throat> He is standing at the doorway of his parents' room all those years ago and his father is shouting at his mother in a drunken rage, telling her to shut up, just shut up. And every time he tells her to shut up, he brings his hands together, making a loud slapping sound, showing her just what he could do if he chose to. And in that same moment, the stick houses and the dirt street that he once called home come back as clear and sharp as the cracking sound of the rug being shaken out below him on the footpath. And as they do, the image of three people standing on that dirt street in front of a vacant paddock one long ago summer evening returns as well. What else can we do, they say? You call us and we come. Every time to this spot and this place of stick houses, dirt streets and thistle paddocks, you call us and we come. His mother's eyes stare back, a look direct and imploring. His father, his father offering an apologetic shrug, suggesting, well, what can I say? What can we say? Only this. Tell our children, all our children, if they should ever ask that we tried in our way and that if we ever hurt them, it was not for lack of trying not to, that we were damaged before we came to them. And if we failed to keep our damage to ourselves, it wasn't for lack of trying. Tell them how it was behind the flying ducks and the laughter, behind the, fa the quaint feature walls and shadow boxes and ornamental boomerangs. Tell them how it really was, if they should ever ask, that on these dirt streets and in these stick houses we lived the wrong life, that they might live the right one. A sudden gust of wind lifts the bare branches of the trees just beyond the town, flinging birds into the sky. The wind comes without warning. The birds are flung upwards, float on the wind, then settle back on the bare branches from which they were thrown. They are flung, they fall. Clouds roll in from the sea. The forest is moving. The pace quickens on the town streets beneath Michael's window. Street vendors, shoppers and townspeople hurrying to work look up. 
The forest heaves, the woods in trouble. The wind is indifferent, it tosses us. Blossoms, birds and lives into the sky and we are thrown back. We land and look about, earth, wind and sky before picking ourselves up. It is us. We are it, the thing itself. It whirls, it is worlding. Wonderful, thank you. Mm -hmm.